Have you ever noticed the world isn't quite what it presents itself to be? That something is just a little off kilter, just a little out of focus. Some of you may know me from my career in the distilled spirits industry as the alchemist of the Black Forest of Indiana. An industry, as I see it, more than just a little influenced by the occult and the work of opening doors and capturing essences. Here, you'll see another side of what I do and how I'm influenced by such experiences. Here, myself and occasionally friends will share first-hand accounts, stories shared with us, for tea and news, interviews, and a healthy dose of history and speculation. Settle in for the ride and enjoy. Perhaps that movement you saw out of the corner of your eye was more than just a shadow. Perhaps that weight on your shoulder, a bit more than fatigue. I've lived my whole life like this. Perceptive of those things that might be viewed by the less aware amongst us as simple circumstances, magic thinking, or even make-believe. Anticipating with the many ups and downs of my own perception, I have anxiously awaited the more positive of those experiences, dreading those of a darker caliber. I believe from societal observation in recent years that others are becoming acutely aware of the currently scientifically unmeasurable world that surrounds us. I believe that spiritual warfare is real. Join us as we take a hard left into the heath and the heather. Join us as we call out into the void, as the veil frays at the edges, and recall, if you have ghosts, you have everything. Hello, I'm Stephanie McNew of the Highly Spirited Podcast. I'm so excited for this crossover episode with If You Have Ghosts, You Have Everything. And it's for the best holiday of the year, in my opinion, Halloween or Samhain if you're a little witchy too. Kim and Alan are wonderful storytellers and hearing about their experiences just always gives me cold chills. Like, I love the show. But today I'm going to share one of my personal experiences and it's the experience that made me truly believe in the paranormal and that spirits are really around us. And I haven't shared this with too many people. My immediate family is well aware of it though, but not a whole lot of other people in my life. So here we go. When I was about 10, like I think I was 10, it was the fall that I was in fourth grade. So 10 makes sense. My family moved into a rental house. It was this huge old farmhouse like a real farmhouse, not these prefab in a subdivision fake ones that look like they were decorated by Joanna Gaines. <laughs> this house had four bedrooms, two bathrooms with one bedroom and one bathroom being downstairs. It also had like several outbuildings, like a Morton building we used for a garage, grain bins, an old barn. And there was a building right outside the back door that had like this walkway breezeway thing between it and the main house. This building had an apartment upstairs and it sat empty, but the landlord used the bottom part for their own personal storage. <laughs> like she just had a padlock on the door and we didn't have access to it. So that was fine. Like we didn't really even think about it too much. It was like, hey, that building's there. We don't go at it. It's fine. <laughs> we just like to explore the old barn and woods anyways. Like we had enough things to get ourselves into on that property. Besides this house being big, it was very old. I would guess built in the late 1800s. It still had the very dark original woodwork 
As now as an adult, I can appreciate because I like design and history and it was very intricate and very beautiful. But as a kid, it just came off very dark and creepy and heavy. It had, and this house had all like the old house noises too, like the creaks and the popping. And it was just overall creepy when you're a 10 year old kid. <laughs> Okay, so we moved in. My parents give my brother and I the choice of which rooms we wanted out of the three upstairs bedrooms. They took the downstairs bedroom and my mom wasn't really into that. She's like, I want to be near the kids. My dad refused. He was absolutely staying in that downstairs bedroom. Don't know what he saw or heard upstairs, but he did not like it. He seldom went upstairs, even to check on us. Dude was not coming upstairs. He absolutely refused to sleep up there. So like, fuck them kids, I guess. But he was not having it. <laughs> and he never talked about it. But there was definitely something up there that he did not like. So mom and dad downstairs, Eric and I upstairs. We would get bored a lot. And I don't know why my mom allowed it. But anytime we wanted to like switch our bedrooms around, she would let us. So he had a bedroom. I had a bedroom. We used the alternative room as like a toy room for like our bigger toys and stuff. So anytime we wanted to switch, we would just be switching stuff around. Mom did not care. So my experience started when I switched to the west bedroom and it was towards the back of the house. And this room was down a hallway kind of off by itself while the other two rooms were closer together near the front of the house. This room had two walk-in closets on each side of it, but they were slanted with the roof. So they weren't like super nice or too functional, but they were completely fine for a kid. My mom used the one on the left side for holiday and seasonal storage. And the one on the right was for like my clothes. And I used to like to play Barbies on the floor in there. Like this room was huge. I don't know why I chose to play in the closet, but that is definitely where I played Barbies at, on the closet floor. I would play there all the time and still until I started seeing him. And him being a shadowy figure in the back of the closet. He was always in the far back corner in the shadows. The first time I saw him, I only noticed him because he had a lit cigarette. So like I saw like that cherry end of it, like you know what a lit cigarette looks like in the dark. That's all I saw of him. So I stopped playing in there and I went downstairs. I told my mom, hey, there's a man smoking in my closet. <laughs> so you know my mom is going to be like, what the hell? No, there's not. But of course, she went up there and checked and was like, there's nothing here. Go to bed. And she was right. There was nothing there by the time she came back to check. So I saw him a few days later. This time there was more light in the closet and there was like more of a silhouette where I could make out more than just like a cigarette. He was wearing what I would describe as a beekeeper suit, like that wide brimmed hat and the netting that would cover the face. He still had a lit cigarette though. <laughs> so I saw him, I just scampered myself back to bed under the covers because you know the covers are the thing that's gonna save you. <laughs> but I told my mom about him again and I was a pretty imaginative kid, so she'd always just brush it off. She says, there's nothing there. It's your imagination or you were dreaming. You weren't even in the closet. She would just, you know, brush it off like a mom would so your kid isn't scared. So I, I continued to see him like every now and then. I like once a month, I would see this thing in my closet. But, you know, she wasn't listening. I kind of stopped telling her about it, but I was very much aware of him being there. And I saw him up until the time we moved out. So he was always there, always smoking, always in that wide brimmed beekeeper's hat, always in that back corner. And the funny thing is like, it never smelled like smoke. I never saw smoke coming up off of it, just the lit end of it. 
there was really no smell to him at all. So being older now, and like I research weird shit pretty regularly, I sometimes wonder if he was some variation of the hat man which is a sleep paralysis demon many from all over have reported seeing at various times in their lives. Like he feeds off fear, but makes very little movements. He just sits and feeds off your fear if you give it to him. This thing never moved. He just sat there, lit cigarette in his stupid little bee hat. <laughs> and I was pretty terrified of him. Over the years, mom continued to brush me off and she worked nights. She really didn't have time for like a scared kid ghost bullshit when she wasn't home. It was like, nothing's there, go to bed, don't worry about it. Until the landlord was over one day cleaning out that building that I mentioned earlier, the one we didn't have access to that they used for like storage of their old family shit. So she was pulling items out and my mom was just like walking by, said hi, made small talk with her. And this lady, the landlord, pulls out a beekeeper's hat, like a legit beekeeper's hat. And my mom kind of stopped in her tracks and asked her about it. And she had said her father, who was the farmer who previously owned this house, used to keep bees as a hobby. So they just didn't get rid of his stuff when he passed away. They just shoved it in here. Was a beekeeper, had that wide-brimmed hat with the net. That's what he would wear when he was working with his bees. So the same man also had a heart attack while on top of one of the grain bins and fell to his death on the same property. <laughs> My mom kept this to herself until I was older and we'd already been out of that house for a few years. Like fucking blew my mind when she told me too. I was like, see, I told you there was a bee man in my closet. <laughs> so really it, it could have been his ghost, that former farmer who resided there. He could have just still been hanging out, I guess, or it could have been a hat man variation, or maybe I just was an imaginative kid. I don't know, but I don't believe in coincidences. I don't think it's a coincidence that there was a bee hat in the storage and that man died there. So I definitely think it was still his spirit hanging around. My brother didn't have too many experiences there, at least none that he mentioned, except for believing that there was some kind of creature that lived in his closet and also in the tree outside his window. So there was this huge poplar tree in front of the house that was literally taller than the house. So the branches would scrape against that front bedroom window quite often. So he didn't like that, but what he described to my mom, it looked like the Noid from the old Domino's commercials. Like this was the thing he was saying, I don't know. <laughs> There was also a mirror at the top of the stairs on the landing that we were both just absolutely petrified of. And I fully believe that mirrors can be portals. I don't think my brother shares that belief, but this mirror was antique and it was affixed to the wall in a way that it couldn't be removed without tearing out a lot of the woodwork around it. So it had to stay, like we could not get rid of this mirror. And I don't know what it was about this mirror, but it always looked like someone else was looking back at you when you looked into it. Like it's still your own face, your own body type, but it made your eyes look like, like they were someone else's. It was so bizarre. And I have very distinct brown eyes. Like they'll turn red in the sun. Like nobody really has my eye color. They were not mine when you looked in this mirror. It was so freaking bizarre. We hated this mirror and you had to walk past it to go anywhere upstairs because you'd get off the stairs. It was right there in the landing to your left. There was no way to avoid it. It was right there. So my mom, being the ever resourceful person she was, just taped a big Aladdin poster over it and told us not to worry about it. <laughs> and that thing did stay covered until the day we moved out. This house sold at auction when we moved out and into my parents' current house. We didn't really think about it. I didn't have any experiences at their current house, like nothing weird there. Just a few years ago, that farmhouse sold again and my brother's friend from high school bought it. 
and he's a single guy that definitely did not need a four bedroom house, but he just wanted it for the barn and land because he raises cattle. So it was a farmhouse, he's a farmer, made sense to him. He doesn't use the upstairs at all, except like his mom regularly brings crap over she doesn't have room for at her house and just shoves them in the upstairs bedrooms, like treats him like a storage unit. <laughs> he um, only uses like the downstairs. He sleeps in that downstairs bedroom my parents had. He uses a downstairs bathroom, really has no reason to go upstairs at any point, so he really doesn't. He got home late one night and still needed to feed the cows. So he was out at the barn and hadn't been home all day. He looked toward the house and noticed the light was on in the upstairs bathroom window. He hadn't been up there all week. He doesn't use that bathroom. He lives alone and confirmed with his mom or anyone else that might have a key that nobody had stopped by, nobody left that light on, no one had been there. So before he was done feeding for the night, the light switched off. And he isn't a guy that scares easily or believes in too much that he can't see. He's very down to earth farm guy. But he said it scared the shit out of him and he did not go back in the house. He slept in his truck by the barn that night. <laughs> I, I have not been back to the house. I'm sure he would let me come walk around if I felt like it, but definitely something going on there. It was my first paranormal experience and I don't think anything much has changed. I think there's still some spirits hanging around there. Hey, we all know how hard it can be to find good help nowadays, right? So imagine my surprise when an admirer of distillation and the product thereof showed up on the doorstep of Spirits of French Lick looking to intern to work for free for me. And I'm a bit of an asshole, to be honest with you. It surprised me as well. But the guy did such a great job that we got him hired on full time after just a couple of weeks. And he's now working as one of my new still hands at Spirits of French Lick. His name's Justin Whaley, and he's doing something really cool for those who enjoy distillation-related podcasts. He has started a podcast called Still Learning. It's kind of an audio journal where you can follow Justin's journey of learning and discovery about distillation in a professional setting. Check it out at Anchor.com and Spotify, Still Learning Podcast with Justin Whaley. Hey guys, this is Alan Bishop, the alchemist of the Black Forest, and... Kim. From... If you have ghosts, you have everything. If you have ghosts, you have everything. You gotta put on the radio voice. I don't have a radio voice. I have a mom voice. You do have is, a mom which voice. Is, which is terrifying. It's slightly scary, I'm not gonna lie. But in tonight's special episode, which is a crossover between... A highly spirited podcast... With Stephanie McNew, and... If you have ghosts, you have everything. Look, you got it right right there, didn't you? I did. We are going to go into some unique Indiana stories. Indiana-specific stories for a very special holiday. Halloween or Samhain. Oh, look at her doing all the witchy stuff and being all cute over there in the corner. Anyways, the first story tonight that we're going to share from If You Have Ghosts, You Have Everything comes directly from my wife, Kimberly Marie Bishop. 
and I'm going to hand it over to her to tell her story. So as a child, I was always, I guess, predisposed to seeing and experiencing things that maybe other people could not. Um, we lived in an older neighborhood um, within the county, one of the first neighborhoods founded in the county, Fleenertown. And um, I don't know if what I experienced there was necessarily connected to the house because the house was relocated from Salem to Fleenertown when my parents bought it. Like that was, we actually found the receipt the other day going through stuff where they paid to have the movers move the house for $5,000. Um, anyway, so I don't know that it was necessarily connected to the house. It could have been connected to the land, but the house was always very active. And my mom was always very supportive of the things that I said that I was seeing and experiencing. My dad, on the other hand, he was a little skeptical until he started to experience those things himself. Um, one of the most vivid experiences I ever had in that house was shortly, I say shortly, a few months after my grandfather passed away, my mom's dad, we called him Pop. Um, I experienced him waking up, uh, waking up and seeing him, very plainly him, standing at the foot of my bed and I was old enough at that time to know that he was gone that he had passed away I was like 10 or 11 um so I knew and I understood you know he was not there physically um it was his spirit and standing next to him was my mother's mom and I described her completely to mom and mom's like yeah that that was my mom that was your mammal seabolt um <clears throat> I saw things in the form of energy, even orbs and energetic mists and things. And it always seemed like they were coming from the backside of the house through my room and into like a closet that was in my room that housed the furnace. Um, and my dad, like I said, he was skeptical of it until such a time as he was home alone and he started experiencing the things that I was experiencing as well. As a child, um, you know, I would share those experiences with my classmates and my friends and they would all, you know, look at me as though I was weird or different or whatever, or even then you got some of them that would spout scripture to me. Everyone does that until they actually have an experience. And once you actually have an experience, it becomes something different. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And um, as a child, I always, I guess I, I always walked a little differently, a different, little different path than other kids. I was the weird little kid that stood out in the yard um, at dusk singing songs to the wind and commanding it to blow and when it did it just excited me it's like that's that's power there's there's power in words and intentions and it's magic um so that sets the stage for where we're going as i got older i began to kind of pull that part of myself a little closer to my chest because you did get weird looks you did get told you were crazy unless you know you had family that had experienced it or friends that had experienced it and had walked that path too as far as seeing things that other people couldn't. Um, 
think it's 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 fair to say that that people like you and I find each other because we're tuned a little bit differently than oh other yeah people it's are. a it's a different frequency right and I think that's one of the things that you and I identified with very early on in our oh, relationship yeah. too for I'm, sure that was the days of MySpace <laughs> <laughs> and I there was a a message chain that went back like for like a month straight of just us messaging back and forth after reconnecting after high school because we did go to high school together um different classes but still together um there's an email chain that went back for like two months before we ever went out on the first date that was like gnostic scriptures and ghosts and just alternate paths and <laughs> right all the all the connections that uh that need to be made to make a a sound healthy relationship Right, exactly. So, um, and like I said, as an adult, I started to pull that part of me back in closer and kind of shield it from the rest of the world. I was going to school at IU. Um, I was traveling back and forth between IU and home to be with the family and things like that. And it was a very chaotic um different time in my life things were unsettled as far as that because I was homesick I hated I didn't hate the school IU is a good school I hated being away from my family and my friends and you know having that connection to the real world it was a very ungrounded place for me Right. It's, it's hard to grow into something new that you don't know. It's, it's hard to adapt yourself to a world outside the world, which you've grown up in. Right. Well, yeah, that, and again, I didn't live on campus, so I was exposed to the chaos that was off of campus because campus is, campus is controlled because campus police will shut you down, you know? But when you live off of campus and you're a block away from the stadium, every Friday night is a party. And so... <laughs> Listen, I was there. They'll shut you down unless you have a... Uh, uh, what, do you, what do you call it? When, uh, uh, fraternity? Re- fraternity, yeah. Unless you have a fraternity and you have a couch. <laughs> uh, yes, I said the word wrong. You have a couch in front of your fraternity and a balcony, and you're jumping off the balcony onto the couch during a basketball game. They'll just ignore your ass. Right. (laughs) Anyway, so in the process of traveling back and forth and being very unsettled at that time in my life, um, probably the scariest experience I ever had, and that's including the thing here on the farm, whatever that was. I mean, and that was terrifying in and of its own right. Um, I had possibly the most horrifying experience of my life, and it's it's corroborated by other family members. I'm not going to go into that right now um, because I don't have their permission to tell their part of the story. Um, but I had come home one weekend and was in my room sleeping but I was woken to a sensation that I can only describe as sleep paralysis and it wasn't me no we weren't dating at the time I don't even know if we were talking yet but I know that was a wink wink nod nod (laughs) anyway um I woke to a sensation that can only be described as sleep paralysis but 
it was not sleep paralysis because I could move my extremities. Um, I could move my head. I could struggle under whatever this weight was. And I was one of those people that I could not sleep without a TV on. And I'm still that way sometimes. Um, I don't like dead quiet in the house when I'm trying to sleep. And I had the TV on in the room. And I remember that between me and the TV, there was this pitch black mass. And the only way that I can describe it is, and I'm, this is me being a dork and a child of that time. Um, the Dementors of, of Harry Potter universe. That's what it looked like. It was a dark cloaked mass hanging over top of me. Um, and it was right, like right in my face. Um, and it felt like it was breathing in my face and it was, the breath was hot and sulfuric and putrid. And it goes back to knowing and realizing your own power and what you can do for yourself in those situations. I said to it, I am a child of the light. If you're here to harm me or anyone else in this house, you leave now. You don't give things like that any, any quarter, no quarter, um, whatsoever in that situation. Now, I can't speak to what this en entity was. My intuition leads me that it w had never been human, whatever it was. And I, I have chills talking about it now. It's not something I talk about very often because, again, when you lend power to things, it gives them traction. But I'm not, I give it no quarter. It has no quarter in my house. It has no quarter in my life. Um, so, I, can... Can I ask you a question? Sure. All right. So you immediately, uh, in the story, you give it no power. Right. But was that an immediate thing or were there other things that happened in between where you had to have that realization of, I can't give this thing any more power over me? It, it was an immediate thing because I felt threatened and I knew if I felt threatened, my, my younger brother and sister are in the house, my mom and dad are in the house, um... And I knew because of the intuition that I had with regard to this thing that it was not there to, it wasn't fucking around at all. Right. And so what, what, what happens? What's the resolution? How the resolution you... was when I said, I am a child of the light. And if you're here to do harm to me or anyone else, you leave now. It, it backed away? up off of my chest and then it was gone. And the room was bright again. There was no It was normal, basically. It was normal, yeah. It right. was light. I mean I mean, I know that's cliche to say and um that and a room guys, gets she lighter. She really does have goosebumps right now on her arms saying this. Yes. It's 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 cliche to say that when a situation like that happens and you're threatened and you you deal with that threat and make it move on that it's lighter but i when i say lighter i mean the air isn't heavy there is 
the air isn't heavy the room is brighter because in magic we talk about light and dark or bright and dark brighter is the way i would describe it it's it's the it's not scary it's not heavy it's not shadowy you can see the corners of the room again it doesn't feel like all the oxygen has been sucked out of the room yeah it goes back to normal life and and normal baseline and the normal like i can cope with these things going forward right and there's almost even i suspect uh, just for me with the experiences i've had there's almost a, a little bit of um i won that one i won that one and a sort of kind of a way of of telling other similar things in the world fuck around and find out <laughs> and so real quick here at the very end of this segment so do you think that that kind of put you on the path that you're on now as far as your spirituality and what oh you're absolutely doing? because at that point in my life i made the decision that i wasn't going to let anything else scare me that way and i realized that i have a power to control what i let in and what I don't. I mean, yeah, you kind of do. You put up with me, so... Well, you know. Yeah, it's not a well you know. I think people <laughs> know that. It's a, it's a little more than that, for sure. You have to have a wrangler, right? Yeah, it's not... Or kid, a handler. It's not kid gloves. It's like, you realize what you just posted? <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. We'll be back momentarily. This is Alan Bishop, 
The alchemist of the Black Forest falls in the air. The leaves are changing. The night's getting a little longer. That only means one thing to me. It's apple brandy season. Be on the lookout for our brand new Spirits of French Lick Bottled and Bond Old Clifty Hoosier Style Apple Brandy. Made from fresh pressed Michigan apples and matured in both 53 gallon number two charred new American oak barrels as well as 68 gallon hogshead barrels. Never chill filtered and always double pot distilled. Named for the legendary pre-prohibition distillery north of Campbellsburg, Indiana. Remember, brandy's just distilled wine, but it's also bourbon's sexier older sister. Please drink responsibly. This is Alan Bishop of If You Have Ghosts, You Have Everything. Are you interested in distilled spirits, the production thereof, tastings? Well, let me tell you about a cooperative group of some of my best friends and favorite podcasters in the industry, the Bar Cart Co-op. The Bar Cart Co-op is made up of several unique spirits-based content creators. Do you love music? The stories behind the music? How about the way that music influences the people who craft your favorite independent spirits? Be sure to check out Kevin Rose and Drew Crawley with special guests on the Bourbon Turntable. Are craft spirits reviews, good laughs, and big personalities your thing? Check out my brothers Patrick and Mike on My Whiskey Den every Monday at 9 o'clock Eastern. Patrick and Mike bring in the best of craft spirits, review them, and have a great time on their show. What a better way to follow up the shittiest first day of the week anyways. Do deep dives into distilling methodology with a diverse group of distillers the world over aimed at both home and legal distillers interest you? And check out my other show with my co-host, Christy Atkinson, Distillers Talk, available wherever you get your podcasts. How about Victorian-era cocktails? My brother, Brian Cushing, Victorian man, has you covered over on YouTube via the Victorian Barroom. For more information, check out barcartcoop.com. It's Stephanie McNew with the Highly Spirited Podcast. I'm still very excited about this crossover episode with If You Have Ghosts, You Have Everything. I hope you enjoyed my last story. Today I have a more impersonal story. It's a story I grew up hearing my whole life, but I've never visited the place. It is Cry Woman's Bridge. And I know almost every little town in every little state has their own variation of Crybaby Bridge or Cry Woman's Bridge. There's just something about bridges that make them folklore worthy, I guess. <laughs> Most of these tales are just urban legends passed down from generation to generation to scare kids until they're curious teenagers and decide to go summon some ghosts by themselves when they get bored. The version of this I was always told took place in Dublin, Indiana, on the western border of Wayne County, where my mom grew up. The legend goes that there was a massive iron bridge on Heacock Road that crossed Simons Creek, but it sat at an odd angle coming out of a curb, so it could be tricky, even in pleasant weather, to get on the bridge correct. The bridge had boards for the bottom where if you hit them the wrong way, it would throw your vehicle into the iron sides of the bridge. Lots of cars sustained damage on this bridge. The boys became slick in the rain, and even if there was fog coming up off the river, they would still get slick. It was just in general pretty dangerous and hard to navigate, but it did get people across the river, so they went with it. <laughs> so it was a dark and stormy night. 
because of course it was. Every, every ghost story needs a dark and stormy night. Anyways, a woman was driving with her infant and lost control when hitting the boards. Her vehicle was flung into the sides of the bridge and the baby was ejected from the car. Because, I mean, why would it be in a car seat? This is early, early years. I don't think car seat safety was a thing until like the last 40 years. So the baby was ejected and it did die on impact. The woman got out to look for her baby, and then she discovered it was deceased. She lost her mind. She climbed to the top of the bridge, cried out that she wanted her baby back, and flung herself into the water below, dying instantly. When stormy nights sense, the woman can be heard wailing and calling for her baby near the bridge, screaming that she wants her baby back. Another way the story has been passed down is that she's only heard on Halloween night instead of stormy nights but she's still crying out for the baby. I haven't personally been to this location because the bridge was closed down in the 1970s before I was even thought of because a milk truck actually fell through the old wooden boards. The town didn't think it was worth the money to replace. It was already dangerous. So they just closed it all off and diverted traffic around the river another way. My mom has been there though, and she says it's actually very creepy. It's wooded and just foggy and just kind of all around the vibes lent itself to this ghost story. <laughs> I texted her for details of that because I couldn't remember like if the if the baby died or if she lost it or what happened. So I asked her for those details. But before she got back to me, I was looking around on the internet and I found another haunted bridge. This one is in Rush County, close to where my dad was from. And I found this one on Hub Pages. This bridge is called Norris Ford Bridge, and it's located on County Road East 300 North, less than a mile from Fort Wayne Road. This is super close to the tiny town of Raleigh, where my dad grew up, and I'm really surprised he's never mentioned this bridge or that he didn't, like, get in trouble fucking around there as a teenager, because it does seem like someplace teenagers would go to, like, drink beer and smoke cigarettes. Or maybe it's just a one he didn't share with us, because <laughs> he definitely had some stories. Norris Ford Bridge is a white-covered bridge that was erected in 1916 over the Flat Rock River. Much like the bridge in Dublin, this one is also surrounded by woods and creepy ruralness that easily lends itself to a ghost story as well. The legend of this bridge does not involve a car wreck, though. It involves a single woman in 1917, because God forbid a woman be single living alone in 1917. <laughs> The townspeople were very disapproving of her. The woman, I couldn't find a name for her. Um, she moved to the area about a year after the bridge was completed and lived mostly a simple farm life, raising chickens and keeping to herself. She had gone into town one day to buy herbs and spices she hadn't yet grown on her farm. The townspeople talked and the rumor soon spread that she was in fact a witch, cause why else would you be buying herbs and spices, I fucking guess. To <laughs> make matters worse, she failed to attend church the following Sunday, which sent the town into an uproar. Then, more unbased rumors spread that she had dead chickens hanging around her house. Whispers continued all around town about her being a witch. The woman, although single and living alone, was pregnant and it soon became hard to hide. She went to the local doctor, who was professional and private about the matter, but it's hard to hide a baby in a small town. The rumors and outrage spread around town. How dare an unwed woman become a mother in these times? <laughs> The townspeople went as far as having a meeting about her and decided the best option was to run her out of town, but they wanted to be civil about it. One evening, a group of them showed up at the woman's door. When they arrived, they discovered her inside with a dead infant. The baby was blue and not breathing. This led to her being further accused of witchcraft and the mob of people became infuriated. The woman managed to escape her home and fled from the mob. She ended up running into the forest with the baby. 
she wasn't seen for about a week. They, they could not find her in the forest, find her anywhere. Then she was spotted in the rafters of the Norris Ford Bridge the following week by a school child. The child told his parents he had spotted her, and a new mob soon formed and went to the bridge trying to capture her. The woman was crying and screaming and seemed to have a very disassociated, horrified look on her face. As she tried to escape the mob again, she fell from the rafters and her neck snapped upon landing, killing her instantly. Her ghost is said to still be heard at the bridge, crying and screaming. Teenagers have often visited the bridge, hoping to see the ghost. Some taunt her out by yelling, hey, I have your baby, and have reported hearing a large smack on the trunk of their cars before they speed off in fear. Another part of this legend takes on a La Llorona vibe, in which the spirit of this poor woman drowns children in the river, since she's seeking revenge for her treatment in life and the loss of her own child. I fully believe this bridge in Rush County is just a local urban legend. <laughs> um, I don't know if there's a lot of truth to this one. I think it's just a scary bridge, so people made up a story and keep passing it down. The one in Dublin does seem more believable to me, and it just might be because I grew up hearing it. I don't know. I definitely believe bridges are creepy, and they just lend themselves to ghost stories. That is what I have for today, guys. I will be back with a part three of this. I think I'm going to be doing some local cemeteries. Until then, take care. Happy Halloween. Bourbon, scotch, cognac, gin, any type of spirit that you get a chance to taste transports you to a new and very interesting universe. Hi, I'm Jack Bigadoo. On the street, I'm known as a hood sommelier. And what I do is I love to taste new spirit and educate people on how to appreciate each spirit that they put their nose or their taste bud into. Follow me on this journey and help me guide you on appreciating every spirit that you touch. Remember, the truth is bearer proof. See you next time. This is Alan Bishop, the alchemist of the Black Forest, and... Kim Bishop, the distiller's wife. We're just going to keep doing this until she finally gets it all out in one take. <laughs> Here, uh, back again on this very special edition episode, the Halloween edition crossover episode with... Highly Spirited Podcast. With Stephanie McNew. So, hope you guys enjoyed our first story, and uh, hope you guys enjoyed Stephanie's first story, so... We're moving into our second one now, and this is one I've actually, I don't think I've ever shared with my wife. Maybe I have, I don't know. But this goes back to when I was probably 17 or 18 years old um, with an ex-girlfriend, so let's hope I don't get punched. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so at that time, uh, I was dating a girl, uh, and we were kind of splitting a job delivering newspapers. Uh, it was actually a, a, a large Louisville newspaper at the time. 
which was a, I, I can't remember if it was a six day a week or a seven day a week thing. I don't remember, but we wouldn't actually get the newspapers until like one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning a lot of times. So they would deliver them to a local service station and we would pick them up, but you had to put them together. So even if they showed up early, you wouldn't get out on the road till, you know, like two, three o'clock in the morning sometimes. Sometimes you get out a little bit earlier. It just depends on how much you had to actually put, how many of the papers you had to actually put Sounds together. Sounds monotonous. It was fucking horrible is what it was. <laughs> it was terrible. It was literally like, open up the newspapers. Here's the ad inserts. You have to put all that in. You have to put the sports section in. So if there were extra ad inserts, did you keep the coupons for yourself? I wasn't. My brain didn't work that way at 17. I mean, I probably. <laughs> I mean, I bet there were like McDonald's coupons or something like that. But uh, uh, needless to say, I put together a lot of newspapers at that point in time. And I don't ever want to have to do that job again. And uh, I'm glad that the internet killed the newspaper business because <laughs> never, ever again. But the interesting thing about that was uh, all the routes that we had, of course, being out here around you know Washington County, they were all very rural, even for Washington County. And windy. Yes. Uh, and treacherous a lot of times because in the wintertime you're delivering papers when it's snowing or, you know, it didn't matter what the weather was. You had to get the newspapers there. And if you missed right. one, you not only would get docked, but you had to actually, you might be laying in bed. Maybe the person didn't get up till 2 o'clock in the afternoon on Sunday. You may be asleep because you didn't get in until 7, 8, 9 o'clock in the morning. Right. If they didn't get their Sunday edition newspaper, not only did you get docked, but you had to get up and actually go deliver it to them. Oh, wow. So if you screwed up, it was bad. It was no fun for anybody. Um, that's probably part of what sabotaged that relationship would be, <laughs> would be my guess. Uh, anyways... So, you know, being out in the middle of nowhere at that time of the morning uh, on a daily basis, but particularly on Sundays because you're out later because there was more of the newspaper to actually put together, right? There was, so you're, you're taking more time before you even get on the road. And then that was the big route because not everybody got like the daily paper or anything like that. Right. They, you know, they just typically got the, the well, Sunday and paper. local papers at that time only run once a week. Right. So, right. Like there was the Tuesday edition and then there was like a, Thursday edition, I think. Yeah, that was the, local papers. That, that was the yeah, that was that wasn't big newspaper right, coming out right. of Louisville. Big, big for us out of Louisville. Right. So, um, anyways, I think we did this for I don't know a year and a half, something like that. And mostly, I didn't see a whole lot of anything. I felt a lot of weird stuff. I heard a lot of weird stuff. Uh, I would get particularly creeped out certain parts of the year, especially when you get into like the Halloween season and all that kind of when stuff. When the veil's the thinnest. Right, exactly. But then also in the wintertime, because the wintertime for me is, is the height of shadow magic. And, and, the, and that's really right. when those things really start to affect me. Um, but we did have a occurrence one time and it happened twice once i was there for and once i wasn't i was sick i think and so she took her brother that that evening morning whatever you want to call it but we're out on a country road um just a little bit uh northeast of salem actually the bypass intersects that road now okay and at the time there wasn't any bypass there right um, but there are two roads that meet. There's an old farmhouse on the right. On the left-hand side, there's a church. So it would have been like old 160 or something like that, right? Um, but yeah, somewhere in that region, yes. Um, it was probably late winter, maybe very early spring. I'm going to say it was sometime in March. It was definitely, it had been rainy and cold. 
so it's either going to be November or March, one of the two. It's either going to be late fall, early winter, late winter, early spring, one of the, one of the two, one way or the other. And um, we came up out of this little dip, come up on top of the hill on this country road after crossing some railroad tracks. And uh, once we get up on top of the hill, there's sort of this intersection. We have this weird thing here in, in southern Indiana. It probably happens everywhere out in the country. Uh, but to where you'll have one road that comes off of an originating road and then the originating road takes a hard right or left because that's where somebody's old fence line used to be when they surveyed right. the road but there's no stop sign there's no yield there's no anything like that it's just <laughs> drive at your own risk essentially on a hope and a prayer <laughs> and uh so i believe that the ex-girlfriend was driving at that time and i initially i was probably putting papers together while we were in the vehicle and i wasn't looking up and she hit the brakes super hard and we were in a Bronco at the time, a late 90s Bronco, and you could hear it. It, it uh, locked up the tires, it slid, it skidded, etc. You know, I'm freaking out because I'm looking down, putting these papers together, whatever, right. you know, trying to figure out what the hell's going on. Obviously, very confused. Uh, a short time after we had just been in a wreck, uh, we were hit by a drunk driver at that time. And uh, when I looked up, what I saw and what she saw, and this is later the same thing that her brother and her saw not too long after this, there was a man, presumably, because he, whatever it was, man or woman, probably about five foot nine, five foot ten, uh, but pretty stocky in build. And bear in mind, this is, you know, three, four o'clock in the morning, cold, wet, nasty rain. So a time when no one should have been out walking around. Right. And aside from that, you're out in the country, so it would be really bad for mm -hmm. someone to be walking around out in the dark because yes. country. <laughs> but what I look up and see just a few feet in front of the vehicle is, for all intents and purposes, a completely formed and yet entirely uh, transparent figure, mm -hmm. full color, all right? wearing a raincoat hmm. with and this person never even looks at the vehicle never even looks at it if this was a real person almost got hit by this vehicle they should have been they should have yeah they should have they would have seen there would have been a reaction there would have right. been a physical reaction there was no physical reaction nothing it just kept walking and it walked across the road mm -hmm. now when i say yellow raincoat I don't mean like yellow raincoat like you think of it nowadays. Think of like old school raincoat with like the almost hard head covering. You yeah. know what I'm talking yeah, about? Does like, that make sense? Yeah, like like 1930s, yeah. 1940s. That's what it was. Mm -hmm. And in the area where it was, it wasn't coming out of a driveway. It mm -hmm. wasn't going into a driveway. It was crossing from a section of grass into a field. And we very specifically sat and we watched as it walked out into the field and disappeared huh completely gone um this again happened to them just shortly thereafter to her and her brother they saw the same thing in the same exact spot mm -hmm. so i don't have any explanation for it it's just one of those kind of creepy things that popped up uh that really didn't have any any former uh fashion to drop it into another full-length show so right. i thought it'd be an interesting one to yeah. drop so, do you feel like it was maybe a um, kind of like a replay of something? I think it was because there was no interaction. 
Okay, that I remember. so in that area, what do you know about the geography of the area, or not geo geology of the area <laughs> is the word I'm looking for. Well, there's there's caves in that area. There's a lot of geodes that you'll find in that area. So there's a lot of crystal formations, etc., and all that kind of stuff that can feed into what it. about is the the limestone shelf yes through it's there in that in that area as well so yeah. we we know through our studies and supernatural and paranormal and whatnot that certain natural substances do hold spiritual energy and collect it and right. can if disturbed release it mm -hmm. or um you know over time release it well and limestone is full of quartz crystals and and one of the interesting asides to that is that you know if you do any research on the mitchell hedges crystal skull in particular uh there are people who very much believe that that was created as almost an early uh computer uh to be able to store and later release information once a technology was figured out and what's interesting now is they're actually making uh basically quartz uh chips that you can put entire volumes of information on uh -huh. on a little one by one little synthetic quartz chip that can be read later these are things that they're actually see i didn't know yeah that. they're sitting in the space now and everything else so that hmm. way there's always a record of human civilization i think the first one was it was either the bible just itself is the entire bible or it may have been multiple volumes of mm -hmm. religious texts, but I know that the right. Bible was one of the very first ones that they did. So yeah, I think that there's definitely an interplay there. Um, but I do very distinctly remember that. I hadn't thought about it in years until we started doing the show. And when I did mm -hmm. the John Bowman episode, uh, Rattling Old Bones, that kind of popped up in my head. But it's, of course, not related, even though right. I think the phenomena is probably fairly close you right, know what I mean? Right. So have you ever had an experience like that of any sort? Oh, I'm, I mean, we've had several together. Mm -hmm. um, when we first started dating that one time, we were on our way back from, we had went out to, it was very frequent for us when we were young. We would go out to dinner like almost every weekend. Um, and we were on our way back from the next county over because we live in Washington County. And while we got a lot of good restaurants around here, sometimes if you want something different, you have to go outside of the county. Um, <clears throat> but we were on our way back from Harrison County and we were coming around a series of corners before we turned off on the county road to come back towards Washington County. And randomly we saw something float across the road in front of us. It was misty. And we both looked at each other and we were like, was that a ghost? And it right. wasn't like a human ghost though. It was like an animal it was like it looked like a fox right yeah 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 and we you and i've had that a couple different times with, with almost the animal sort of thing right where you see the outline of it etc mm -hmm. it moves across the road and yeah I, I think that that probably happens pretty commonly oh yeah i would yeah well and it happened right up the hill here from the house not maybe three months ago to me mm -hmm. um right. and then there was the time that we were we talked about it on the episode with uh, bex mill yeah. with Judy um, when we were on our way back yeah. from Bexmill Music and we saw the uh, indigenous, indigenous gentleman in the field dancing during the thunderstorm and we were both like, well, that was new. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, that'll that'll wrap up this little, this little short piece for us and uh, we'll be back momentarily. Enjoy uh, Stephanie's next part.
Hey Metalheads, I'm Mark and I host the Metal Forge. Let me tell you about the show. The Metal Forge features the best underground metal from all over the world. We spend every week with a different artist with interviews, in-depth conversations, and most of all, the music. We also feature audience interactivity where you can submit your questions to the upcoming guests. New episodes are out every Friday at noon Eastern Time at MetalForgeRadio.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Welcome back to If You Have Ghosts, You Have Everything, with the alchemist of the Black Forest, Alan Bishop. In this segment, I'm going to talk a little bit about one of my friends who passed away a couple years ago, a really good guy by the name of Bill Schultz. Bill was an all-around great dude. He literally helped me out with all kinds of research that I'd done into historic distilleries in southern Indiana because Bill was an active spelunker and he was more than willing to share the information he had with me about places he had visited private property whereupon there were caves where there may have been distilleries and to help me identify which distilleries were associated with which cave springs and whether or not i could access them via public land or via a private land owner he literally let me borrow maps he drove me around he showed me places he told me stories of things that he'd found in these caves etc But the other common interest that Bill and I had was in the supernatural, particularly in cryptids. One in particular that we both favored was Bigfoot, Sasquatch, Sabe, whatever you'd like to call them. Whether you think that they're wood apes or you think they're something not quite entirely of this world, Bill was convinced that they existed and he had had several encounters himself. And to sort of back up Bill's background and show you just how relevant it is that this man believed in this. He actually was retired from the U.S. Forest Service. He was in fire protection. He had studied natural resource law enforcement at Indiana State University. I mean, the guy literally was fighting fires in national reserves, national parks, He'd seen some things. He'd had some very strange experiences. And two experiences that he turned me on to happened at a place called Cave River Valley. Now, for those who are interested in the history of distilling in southern Indiana, I've written a lot about Cave River Valley and talked a lot about Cave River Valley. What used to be called the Old Clifty Mill and Distillery, and also a complex of about eight to nine other distilleries that we know of in the same valley. This valley is a box canyon made of limestone in the state of Indiana just north of Campbellsburg, Indiana. It's now a nature preserve owned by the Indiana DNR. It's a really beautiful place. I love it there. A lot of people grew up around it. There are a lot of people related to the people who formerly owned it as a local park and picnic and fishing and recreation area. Uh, A lot of those families are still around. They still visit the place. I try to make it out there a couple times a year because I think it's absolutely beautiful. I have never personally got any overly creepy feelings from the park i've always found it a little strange perhaps that at least in my experience all the times i've hiked there i've never once seen a squirrel or a rabbit all the deer i've ever seen in the park are always on the move they're never stopping it's like they just run through the place to get through it and get out of there it's a very unique situation because there are multiple caves on the property 
Uh, nobody has lived there in many, many years, many decades, in fact. There's no real commercial traffic there, although now it is hiked quite a bit by locals. However, Bill turned me on to two stories regarding Bigfoot sightings, very close encounters of Bigfoot at Cave River Valley. Now, I wanted to tell this story because Bill did tragically pass away a few years ago. Um, unfortunately, he didn't have much family. He didn't didn't seem to have a ton of very, very close friends. The few that he had, at least in the, in the same community that I'm in, were few and far between. And uh, I thought this would be a cool little tribute to him. So I don't know and cannot remember if Bill was actually actively involved in either of these incidences. And there is an episode of Sasquatch Chronicles out there uh, where someone who was involved apparently did relate these incidents. But um, I'm going to read these because I think they are interesting. They are related directly to my home county and they are related to a complex that once involved distillation and they are related to my good friend Bill Schultz. So here we go. The first incident occurred in approximately August of either 1997 or 1998. I can't recall offhand the exact year any longer. This happened on private land near Campbellsburg, Indiana. The terrain of this private land is moderate hardwood forest, heavy leaf litter, and only mildly rugged. There are several caves, all of them quite extensive, as privately held cave systems go. There's also a valley with a small creek and a disused cabin. We had two separate incidences. On the first night, we camped at the top of the valley so we could look down on the overlook and we could see the stars. After dinner and a couple of beers, no one was intoxicated by any means. One by one, we headed off to use the restroom downwind and far away from camp. On one side of the camp was the valley and on the other side was a very steep incline leading down to a privately owned field that no one could trespass without risking at least a rest, if not worse. As I started out into the forest to relieve myself, I heard the distinct sounds of someone walking purposefully up this steep incline. The footfalls were heavy enough to be heard distinctly, apart from the shuffling of leaf litter. I squatted down, thinking it was the adjacent property owner coming over to complain about noise or trying to chase us off, even though we had full permission to use this property. The footfalls stopped at the top of the incline, and then whoever this was took off running full bore into the deeper parts of the forest. The footfalls were very distinctly bipedal and not the rapid sound of deer footfalls. I didn't know who this may be, so I called out to them. The running continued and no response was given. After I did my business, I went back to camp and the other persons agreed they heard the footfalls and thought it was me. None of us saw anything at the time. About two hours later, we heard a very loud scream, starting at a low pitch and rapidly increasing to a piercing screech. We heard this only once and it caused the forest sounds to stop. About two to three minutes later, the normal forest sounds started again. We then decided to turn in for the night. We had been creeped out enough. We slept in our van on our trips, so we climbed into the van and fell asleep. About two or three a.m., one of the other persons on the trip yelled out and woke us all up. He'd awakened to see a large arm he never specified anything other than it was very large and the hand was large and dark, reaching in the van window and taking food out the front seat. We looked and the food was partially missing. The remainder spilled about the seat and floorboard. I can't say for sure if he was dreaming, 
hallucinating or just spooked from earlier and mistook a raccoon for an arm or something like that. Something had disturbed the food, but I don't know what it specifically was. Though, I personally made the connection to our visitor from earlier visiting the camp. No tracks were found in the camp, but we could see where something large had ascended the steep incline the night before when we investigated the next morning. These were just gouges in the hillside and disturbances in the leaf litter, nothing more. But whatever or whoever came up that incline had marched right up and never hesitated. We didn't have tools to measure, photograph or record what we saw, as we didn't think it was a Bigfoot, but rather an animal or the other property owners at that point. We camped in the valley for the remainder of the trip without incident. We returned about a year later. We decided that we'd camp in the valley for the trip. It was creepy on top of the hill, plus we were still thinking the adjacent property owner would be angry again at us being up there with a bonfire and making noise at night. We had three uneventful nights in the valley. The fourth night was different. Other than the noise of the stream, the normal quote-unquote night sounds were generally absent, except for the occasional owl calls or other sporadic noises. It was quite eerie that night. We went to bed around 1 a.m. This time we were camping in tents and not the van. About an hour later, we heard the familiar footfalls, this time descending the valley wall on the opposite side of the creek. There would two or three footfalls, a sliding sound, then 20 to 30 seconds of silence. This process repeated until we assumed the person reached the edge of the creek opposite us. After what seemed like an eternity, the person crossed the creek very slowly. We could hear gentle splashes with each step. Once in our camp, we could hear shuffling sounds. Our fire had gone out, so we could not see anything through the tent walls. None of us really cared to confront whoever or whatever was visiting. After about 30 minutes of shuffling, our cooler was forcefully knocked to the ground. Silence followed, and we all fell back asleep. I awoke some time later to the sound of someone approaching the tent. As I looked up through the rainfly, a head appeared and looked down at me. As we were under the tree canopy, the lighting was very poor. I could see that the head was very large. There was coarse hair on top and sticking out to the sides in places, but the face was in shadow. At that point, I gasped and the head quickly moved out of view. I could hear it cross the creek and head up the hill and it was gone. I mentioned this to the guys the next morning and none of them had noticed it, returned for the second visit, but me. We had no further disturbances. Neither time did I feel threatened or any negative feelings other than the fear of encountering an unknown visitor, whether human or otherwise, but the head looking in the tent and the stealthiness of the visitor clued me in that this was not a man looking to scare us, but rather likely a startled Bigfoot, the first encounter, and an inquisitive Bigfoot, the second encounter. I poked around quite a bit on the property and didn't see any obvious sign of a large animal, but there were lots of deer, and the disused cabin had several bedding areas in it. Something or someone had bedded down there many times in the past, but the areas looked disused as well. Also note, these bedding areas were on both the first and second floors of the building. So this is, to me, an interesting story. And the reason I find it so interesting, other than it being local and related to Bigfoot and related to Bill Schultz, as we just talked about Bill Schultz, my friend who passed away. But there is a long history in Washington County, Indiana, specifically around that part of the county, of what the old timers used to call drop bears. 
By all accounts, these things seem to be somewhat humanoid in nature, although covered with hair. And the closest thing that they could be compared to was a bear, although there is a distinct difference between what they called a drop bear or honey bear and what we actually had here that we know we had, which were black bears. These drop bears were reported to sometimes drop out of trees onto people to attack them. So could it be that these drop bears, these honey bears, were actually the ancestors of whatever was encountered at Cave River Valley? It's a good question. And now that my brother Bill Schultz isn't on this mortal coil anymore, I bet he's got the answer.